I'm going to go broke. What better time? I already had a Ponzi scheme, all my money. So like bankruptcy was just going to be like the worst case scenario option. I had already had all my money taken from me. So I was like, what's the worst case? You know, 55 grand on credit cards. Like, okay, you know what? I just lost 300. I kind of was in that mindset of let me go all in to try to win it back. Probably like right, right, yeah. what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> this know? is not prescriptive, by the way, if you're listening. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today's show, Brian Decker. Brian is a loan officer based out of California who has an amazing business. A couple of big takeaways from this conversation. First, last year, Brian did 1,800 mortgages. 600 of them were from social media, from his Instagram, his YouTube. The guy has got this stuff figured out. It's an amazing conversation. He gets into some very tactical stuff on helping you use that to engage with your audience. I learned a ton, took a lot of notes myself. Also, he's hosting a event in San Diego called High Society Mastermind. And I'm actually gonna be going to that event. So you can go check that out if you wanna go, go to highsocietymastermind.com. And then if you sign up, let me know. Maybe we'll meet up down in San Diego. It's coming up in April. So I'm excited with that. As you guys have probably listened to my show, I've been talking about TikTok and these other platforms. I believe that as a mortgage broker, we have to get better at using these things. And so I plan to go learn from Brian because I learned a ton from this conversation. I can imagine what a whole day will do. So you can check that out, highsocietymastermind.com. Also, we'll put a link in the show notes. Also, a couple of things. He talks about how he had to reinvent himself several times. So he went from direct mail into social media. He talks about the importance of having an avatar. So speaking to a single client type, even on social media, not trying to speak to everybody. And this was a really good reminder of just how to engage and create more engaging content and not trying to speak to everybody at once because then nobody listens. The Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Reuven from Deeded about his inspiration. Where did the idea come from for this virtual law firm? And I actually just closed two mortgages with him personally, some of my own property, a refine a purchase, and it worked awesome. It was fantastic. I sat in my office and jumped on a screen and they sent me a link and I signed everything with my finger on my phone. It was pretty amazing. You can check out those guys to dda.ca. Before we jump into this episode, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform. They are fantastic. You know, recently our brokerage, I just did the stats yesterday, our rookies have 86 live files on the go and they're managing them all through Finmo and it's very easy for our rookies to learn. It's also great for borrowers. It's easy for borrowers to use and intuitive as the borrower's filling out the application, it's actually figuring out what documents that they need, trying to figure out what to do with the file. You can go into the written lender spotlight and search guidelines and rates. And then when you get ready to hit submit, it's also gives you another chance to double check what those rates and guidelines look like. And it does a smart submission notes, so it pulls data right from the app, puts it into the notes. Because as you know, what the lender sees on their site is not always what we see on our site. Actually, it never is. So try to make it simpler for them. So check that out and check out this conversation with Brian. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, Scott. So today we're going to jump into, you're really good at social media marketing, a whole bunch of cool stuff you're doing. But before we get there, I'd love to ask you some questions about sort of, how'd you get into the mortgage business? When did you start? And, you know, we'll speed up to kind of some of the stuff you're doing right now. But tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely, man. So uh, I actually, right out of college, I went and actually became an accountant right out of college when I went to school for. And basically my two college roommates actually at the time kind of dropped out of college and got into the mortgage industry. And this was like right in the boom of about 2003, 2004. So I went out, got a job working at one of the big accounting firms. It was called Deloitte at the time. Was there very, very briefly, realized very, very quickly why I was there. Um, you know, I kind of stood out like a sore thumb. I mean, I got a bunch of tattoos. You can't tell me uh, and stuff now, but wasn't exactly 
exactly the stereotype. You don't look like an accountant. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I, you know, was going to make about 40 grand and had graduated pretty high up in my class. My uh, college roommate had come home who both I uh, tutored in college basic math pretty much. And both of them came home with $25,000 monthly checks on the mortgage industry. And I was like, you guys couldn't even do basic math. How are you teaching people about finance? (laughs) You know, this is scary, man. And so I literally, no joke, went to Barnes and Noble and bought one of those Cliff Notes books, Mortgages for Dummies. I literally read it, hit up two of my buddies that had opened, you know, a small little mortgage broker shop in 2004 and really just started at 22 and really got into it at that point and really never looked back from there. Are your buddies still in it? One of them is, one of them is not. So, you know, they were kind of those people that they liked the money. They never took to actually truly making it a career. They kind right, of right. were in and out of it based on what the kind of the market cycles allow. And it was kind of easy money back, you know, I got it in 2006. Okay, so then fast forward to today. So you were mentioning to me previously that in around 2009 is when you decided to get really serious and dial in your business. So what did you do then to sort of start to get focused? What were you doing different? Yeah, it was kind of by necessity. I was doing fine. I was doing 15 units a month, you know, pretty much from 2005 to about 2009. And then obviously, you know, the market crashed hard in 2009. Yeah, there was a lot. It was a bit of a bloodbath for a little little while there. You know, I mean, I remember I had, you know, 60 loans in my pipeline and all of a sudden IndyMac closes, Countrywide closes, they all kind of collapsed, you know, and so I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to diversify. I came from no money. I had saved up at the time. I think I was 27 or something at the time, 28 years old around then, and saved up a couple hundred thousand bucks and had put it into an investment. And about the end of 2008, I invested with one of my buddy's dads, who was kind of the guy I always looked up to be. He had multiple Ferraris, lived in Newport Beach, where I was at. Basically, long story short, he ended up going down as running a massive, massive Ponzi scheme. He was on American Greed, the TV show. Um, wow. His name was, yeah, John DeMar. I still throw his name out there because he still stole all that money. So I have no problem <laughs> throwing casting some shade on it, but whatever. But it was the best thing that happened to me because I went from, you know, at 27 years old, having three, 400 grand saved up in the bank. And I had put all of my chips in because I really wanted to be like this guy. And long story short, got a phone call from my buddy and said, hey, my dad's just been arrested. He was running a Ponzi scheme. The FBI is involved. They're going to try to see if you can get your money, but all your money's gone. And here I am as the mortgage market's collapsing. My nest egg and my safety net was just completely ripped from me. And so... I looked around at 27 year olds, like a lot of kids that were making decent money. I had nice cars, but I was pretty fiscally responsible. I just said, okay, shoot, I got to get away from the party scene of Orange County, kind of that mortgage Mecca, the market's crashing. I got to reinvent myself, moved in down with my little brother who was renting a crappy little apartment in El Cajon right outside of San Diego, kind of a ghetto part of San Diego, moved in with him basically had no real money in my checking account, decided that I had an American Express card that I definitely um, always maintained my credit, decided I was going to do a direct mail campaign, did direct mail for the first time ever, kind of came up with a little strategy I had kind of emulated from other companies I had worked at, put all my chips on the table. And that was in what, June of 2009. And basically December of 2009, I ended up closing like 55 loans, made a quarter million bucks that month. And was it from all from the direct mail, all from the direct mail on that side of it. And basically just 
worked, 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 worked. I said, so how much, okay. I got to ask you this. You had yeah. your Amex card. How much did you have to, what was all the chips at that point? So I was, I had went over my Amex limit and I had gotten a city card too. So I was about 55,000 bucks in the hole at that time, had no money. I mean, literally no money, but I figured kind of at the time I was like, you know what? If I'm going to go broke, what better time? I already had a Ponzi scheme, all my money. So like bankruptcy was just going to be like the worst case scenario option. I had already had all my money taken from me. So I was like, what's the worst case, you know, 55 grand on credit cards. Like, okay, you know what? I just lost 300. I kind of was in that mindset of let me go all in to try to win it back. Probably like right, right, yeah. what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> this know? is not prescriptive, by the way, if you're listening, this is just, this was your experience and, and yeah. you were, you know, clever and there's always a little bit of luck involved, you know, clever and luck. And so how long did it take you to get back your 55 K yeah. investments? So, I mean, I literally, I think in November I had closed like seven loans, like, it, cause it was like a snowball effect. You know, the sales cycle of mortgage. Yeah. You, know, they, you, you don't get paid right day. away. Yeah. So it was like, you know, it takes a while for the mail to drop, get the phone calls in, know what you're kind of doing. And then, so pretty much by December, I got 250 grand in clone closings that month. Mind you, the most I'd ever made in a month before that was maybe 30 grand in a month, right? So here I was going from like never having, you know, ever made more than 30 grand to all of a sudden quarter million bucks in a month, paid off all the expenses and paid off my Amex card right away, paid off my student loans that I had, and then stayed living in that crappy apartment I was paying 800 bucks a month for and stayed there for a year and was able over that course of that next year to, um, you know, make about a million and a half bucks, you know, that year, put a million bucks in my, you know, accounts, which I look back, I should have probably invested that. But after losing everything, I was just, you know, so scared. A little bit gun shy, yeah, yeah. You know, and then put my pedal to the metal, then slowly started building out just a little bit of a team. Ended up, I was at a small, small, like kind of a regional company at the time based out of Utah, even though it was in San Diego. Went over to guaranteed rate in kind of 2011, and then kind of rose the ranks there. And by like 2012 was one of their top, you know, three or four loan officers there. It was closing about 250 million a year, pretty much all refi at that. And then 2013, I saw the market start to turn with the, you know, quantitative easing and all of that and flipped the script. And once again, kind of really made a big move and moved back to my hometown to really go hardcore after purchase business. Cause I was like 90% refi and went hardcore after purchase business and then really went and attacked listing agents in the sense of, I said, Hey, whoever controls the inventory controls the market. So really went after them and focused on the approach of truly being the best at two things. One, I started was producing content and then two education. So like as a real estate team, the biggest thing that a team owner struggles with is constantly training their team in the proper manner. They get burned out. They're running their team meetings. They're doing this. So I said, Hey, what if I could come in and not teach them just about mortgage stuff because that's boring, but teach them actually how to become better real estate agents, how to market, how to understand market updates, how to overcome objectives. And so over the next two years, I just be, kind of came the guy that, oh, you know, I was making their lives easier. And so pretty quickly by 2015, I was like 90% purchase, closing about a quarter million a year in purchase business. Did that, moved over to Loan Depot, became their top loan officer there. Left Loan Depot at the beginning of 2019 to start my own mortgage brokerage, Modern Lending. Came over here with about 16 members and now I've built it up to about 45. So, and then now we have our warehouse lines. And I got a bunch of questions because yeah. this is a fantastic story. So first, the Amex 
I'm going to go right back to the beginning. The direct <laughs> yeah. mail, that was a refi campaign, correct? Yep, 100%. All refi, basically putting a unique identifier number on the mailer at the time. And so you knew which areas spending. were working and stuff. Yep, and they would call me in, and the first thing I would say would be like, oh, you know, thank you for calling. Can I please have your customer ID number on the top right-hand corner of your mail piece? Then I can pull up your information. And so I just had it on an Excel spreadsheet. This is back in 2009, right? They give me that number. I do control F type in that unique identifier number, it'd pull up the record of them and the mailing. And I'd be like, oh, perfect. Is this, you know, John Smith, uh, blah, 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 street, you know, currently loan is being serviced with blah, 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 blah. And they'd be like, oh yeah. Like, how do you know? Yeah. You like cream in your coffee. You're like, how do you yeah. know this stuff, homie? Yeah. And it was just buying data and then yeah, yeah. utilizing kind of that before things were, and then really just you know, I'd kind of polished my sales skills from selling women's shoes at Nordstrom's to kind of put myself to college. So it just kind of ended up working out. So, okay. But like most things, something that works can stop working. So when did you see that that was going to come to an end? Obviously rates were starting to change, but forced you to shift into purchases. Cause I saw, what was the company that dropped like 900 employees just recently yep. via better, Zoom? Yeah. Better, yeah. Better, yeah. yeah because better, they're a refi shop and all of a sudden the holy crap, they're looking at rates. So what were you looking at that made you make that shift? Yeah. So Two things I really saw was, number one, I've always tried to grow my business in an avenue where it was an avenue of the way marketing and business was coming to me was something that a lot of my competitors didn't want to do. So meaning doing that direct mail kind of piece when everybody was out of the industry in 2009, because they had all lost their shorts, I said, okay, they're all stopping doing direct mail. Why don't I just start doing it in 2009? They were doing it in 2003 to 2008. So I did that. And then I really did that personalized approach. And then what I saw when 2012, all these guys were back in as rates kept dropping year after year, everyone kept just refinancing their book. And then obviously QE1, QE2, QE3 started coming out and really forcing rates up. So I thought to myself, okay, purchases are annuities. If I wait until rates really go up, I'm going to have a ton of loan officers to compete with. But if I get out now and go super hardcore at realtors back in like, it's probably right end of 2012, I was like, I'm going to get a leg up. And then if I become the guy that's really starting to produce content, everybody after that is just going to be an emulator of Brian Decker. And more importantly, it's hard. It's easy to write a check to do direct mail, but it is very hard to- yeah, You create a moat. It's very difficult yeah. to overcome that versus somebody can just outspend you on direct marketing, but it's very difficult to out-content you if you've been doing it for eight or nine years. Yep. So then in terms of content, what areas are you currently focusing on that are working best for you as a mortgage broker, loan officer, right? Yeah. So the biggest thing I tell everybody is, is short form content right now is what everybody craves. The millennial generation is if you can't hook me in three seconds, I'm swiping up or swiping right or swiping left. Like that is the mindset. That's why TikTok has exploded. That's why Instagram reels have exploded. That's why YouTube shorts have exploded. So what I originally was doing was long form content, but what really over the last two years that really kind of blew when me When you say up, short, how short are we talking? What oh, I'll give you an idea on a window. Like, let's just go straight. I'll just give you kind of the, the exact formula on it. So right now on Instagram, which is where I kind of really dominate a lot of my content and really focus a lot of it is Instagram's algorithm, which is called Instagram 2.0, started coming out at the end of last year. So the original Instagram that Facebook purchased was all about 
images. Like, oh, I like this pretty image, very little text, like this pretty image. Oh, I'm going to like it. Oh, I'm going to contact it. And then they rolled out IGTV, which was longer form content up to about 15 minutes. And then they decided to roll out Reels last year, which Reels limited you ideally to obviously 60 seconds or less. So when I'm talking short form content, Instagram algorithm loves two video formats more than anything else. So the one thing that people need to know very specifically about Instagram is you have two types of ways of getting in front of your avatar. Number one is paid, which paid is basically, you know, running ads, you know, boosting posts, all of that. Or two, what you can do to grow your audience or your followers is organically. Now, organically, you used to be able to do this through IGTV, which is longer form content, or posts. Well, Instagram algorithm has changed. Now, IGTV, longer form videos, anything over 60 seconds, and any type of carousels or you know posts, you'll call it, all of that is to entertain your current audience. That is to keep your current audience there. That is not to gonna grow your actual organic footprint. Reels is the only way right now outside of paid to organically grow your following. So when you're going through and you're wanting to produce content, Reels, 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 two video length formats that Reels algorithm right now, and this is March of 2022 loves, is between 35 and 45 seconds. So 35 and 45 seconds. And then the other one is between 10 and 15 seconds. Those are the two types. The Reels algorithm is going to be so crucial in actually showing your videos to your non-followers because that's the only way to grow because you can't rely on your current audience to be your raving fans, to constantly tag everybody, share things to everybody. Like it's too much work to ask of your audience. And, and they don't do it like they used to. And they don't, and they yeah. don't. So you can't rely on your growth of your company to be in the hands of your fans. No, you are the captain of your ship. You make those decisions. And that's why you need to be producing reels content and there's a very important formula that you have to follow. Right. Okay. So when did you go all in? So my wife actually has an Instagram account with 40,000 followers and she yep. teaches sourdough baking online. Awesome. It's, it's a little six figure business that most people don't even think about, but I've noticed that her engagement's gone down, but if I'm honest, she's not since, when did you say that the change happened? Uh, probably like October, November. Yeah. Yeah. But she's not really doing reels and she's not doing the short form content very much. Just a little yep. bit. And that's not stories, right? So what is the difference between stories? So, so yeah, so what you basically, you have really four types of content on Instagram. You have posts, which is, you know, pictures. Images, right? pretty great. Yeah, like, right? like interest-ish. Yeah. Yep. Then you have IGTV, which is longer form video content, right? Anything over 60 seconds, up to 15 minutes. Number three is stories. So stories, those stories are the little circle bubbles at the top of your Instagram feed. Everything serves a purpose. So what stories are is to give your current audience the back scene to your life right? On my stories, what am I showing? I'm showing my wife and I building, you know, our dream home right now. I'm showing, you know, me coaching my son's flag football team. I'm showing me behind the scenes of my life. That's what stories are. And stories are quick. And the most important thing on a story, if somebody posts a story, for an example, and you choose no engagement interaction feature, it's going to suppress your engagement. Meaning this, if your wife puts something up and let's say she's going to do a story 
And she says, you know, my sourdough bread recipe, I can do it both in the bowl form that you can do a bowl for a soup, or I can make it, you know, in a baguette form, you know, on these two types. I really do pretty good for a guy who's not a sour. Right. Like, keep going, going, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and that would be something she would do. But here's the thing. She didn't ask for any engagement from her audience. So you have to tell them. So what you would do is what she in her case would be is saying, you know, here's a, you know, a sourdough bread bowl. Here's a baguette. Which one of these do you think took me longer to bake with a pole bread bowl baguette, right? And it's a pole on her story. Then what happens is people then say, oh, baguette or bowl. Now, what does that tell the Instagram algorithm? People are engaging in her content, not viewing it. Instagram wants engagement, right? Mm. That's important. If Instagram wants just viewership, they'd be Netflix, right? Just consuming content. Consume. No, Instagram, they want engagement. They want your wife to be responding to people who are choosing to engage on, I like it, I have a poll, I have a question, I have whatever that is. So every story that you post, whether that's a poll, whether that's a question, whether it's a this or that, whether it's a sliding heart, something that is going to make that user on the other end do a physical task back to her, right? And then that, your stories are for your current audience, okay? So for your current audience, they are not for growing your organic following. People outside your wife's non-followers are not seeing her stories. So remember that your stories are for the behind the scenes look at your audience, And it's so important to remember to produce content, not that you want to produce. What does your audience want? They're the ones consuming your content, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what's super important on stories. Now, reels, on the other hand, reels is all about talking to your avatar and following your content pillars. So the biggest mistake that everybody makes in the mortgage industry or real estate industry or insurance brokerage industry is they talk about stuff that people don't care when they're outside the sales cycle. I'm sorry, but nobody gives a crap about mortgage programs or what interest rates are doing or what your client's testimonials are saying outside the sales cycle. Now, how often is somebody buying or selling or refinancing? Once every four years, five years, right? So how are you supposed to grow your audience if they're only supposed to care about you for 30 days once every five to seven years right so what do you do and why is your wife sing successful because guess what people bake bread all the time people cook right. all the time right so what i did i failed for about five years of producing content in terms of really growing and engaging audience i taught people about mortgages And I taught people about real estate trends, like what the market was doing, which is fantastic. And why I grew, you know, 50,000 realtors and loan officers. But guess what? A realtor in New Jersey doesn't bring me any value to my revenue, right? I'm not doing loans in New Jersey right now. And a loan officer in New Jersey isn't doing anything to me. I'm basically that. So what I had to figure out was, why am I producing content? What's my why? And that was to make money. That was to make money. That was to get attention which attention turns into contacts, contacts turn into leads, leads turn into sales. So if I needed to get people's attention, I need to make sure that they're tuning into me every day. I want them to come watch my content. So what I did is I said, okay, I called my friends up because people always say, well, Brian, I don't know what kind of content to produce. It's very simple. Pick up the phone, call your three best friends. 
and say, hey, when would you call me to ask me a question? What do you think I'm an expert in on something outside of my job as a mortgage loan officer? Like if you were in a problem and you had a specific problem in this call, I would be one of your first two calls. And so my friends told me, Brian, like if I have any questions about where to move my money, investing, crypto, buying real estate, fixing my credit, like, cause you came from nothing and now you're, you know, one of my wealthiest friends. I want to know how you did that. So it light went on. I said, Dave Ramsey, in my opinion, sucks. I think he's terrible. I don't like his advice. So me, mm -hmm. I said, okay, why don't I be the modern day Dave Ramsey teaching people? No, the best decision isn't to pay off your mortgage. The best decision isn't to, you know, save for a massive college savings account for your kids before you start investing in real estate, right? So my pillar was, I'm going to teach you everything that high school and college should have taught you about to increase your financial IQ, right? Then people want to engage in my content, right? And so that was my content pillar. So for another loan officer, maybe that's, you know what? You're an unbelievable coach to all your kids' sports teams. So guess what? What are other parents? They own homes. They tune into you to see all the flag football drills, baseball drills, soccer drills, everything that you teach in these quick clips that they're going to be able to do it. Or maybe you're awesome at interior design, right? And people are going to... So figure out one who your avatar is, meaning who you want to be transacting and doing sales with you, and then talk to your friends on what you're good at and you're passionate about, and then find the intersection of that. And that's one thing that I've kind of helped just a lot of people, you know, is just, you know, they'll come up to me in like two seconds and say, well, Brian, what should I do? You know, it's just a really easy exercise. And All right. Yeah. Friends. So what people are already relying on you for, and yep. then what's something you have a passion about? Okay. That's really good. Okay. So from your Instagram, so I want to get into the yeah. granular of this a little bit. So what did you guys do last year for mortgage volume? What was your service? Yeah. So last year we did for mortgage volume, we have about nine loan officers, like I said, a total team of 40 and that includes about a seven person content team. We did just about what, 1800 transactions for about 750 million. 1800. And then from those 1800 transactions, how many of them are coming from you? And like, cause you've got loan officers. Is this all being done by you? Are you all like being done by me? So like I am the rainmaker. So what I basically do my, you're the I'm guy just, who drives all the traffic. I drive traffic. all the traffic. I'm pretty much our CMO and CEO, right? That's what my job is to drive all the business through the door to basically do that. So through content, meaning through content, either between my Instagram stuff, like, you know, anything that's content marketing based, right? Blogs I write, Instagram, podcast stuff I do, IGTV, YouTube, all of that. We're about 30% of all my business comes from those content marketing. And it probably is a little bit more because- So about 600 loans last year came from- Yep. Content content and marketing. of the three, which one currently do you feel is moving the needle the most? Instagram. Instagram. Yep. Instagram and Facebook. I mean, they're kind of partnered together to a certain extent, but Instagram is really, really the one that's been my big driver. And are you supplementing the content marketing with advertising? Is that a part of the strategy? Yeah. So the biggest thing that you want to do is before you start doing any paid at all, you need to do a complete overhaul of your Instagram. You need to make sure and do an analysis of your bio. Like most people don't realize the first two lines on your Instagram profile are searchable. So I always laugh, people pick a name like, you know, whatever, Sam Smith, the lender, right? And then underneath it says, you know, Sam Smith. Okay, like my Instagram handle is the Brian Decker. So I don't have my name in my profile. The Brian Decker, my username 
is where I put it. And then below it, where it's actually your name is, it says mortgage, crypto, and real estate. Because the first two lines of Instagram are searchable. So I see the biggest mistake people make is they waste their username on some random like name, whatever, you know, Sam Smith loves cats or something random, right? And then underneath it, they write Sam Smith again, where it should be is, you know, whatever, Sam Smith 24 or whatever, Sam Smith, California, Sam Smith loans is their username. The real Sam Smith. Well, the real Sam Smith, please stand up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And then underneath that, where their name is, put their pillars of content, right? Like mortgages, sourdough bread, and whatever they are, right? You know what I mean? And then that way, when people are searching on Instagram, you are actually becoming searchable and within the niche of people that are searching your stuff, right? And then making sure you have a call to action. You have to set up your profile that gets a lead magnet and a conversion mechanism because- People go to your profile, you have a link tree that's going to link them to all the places they can go apply for your mortgage loans or your other socials, like all of those things. So, and then going through with that, you have to make sure that you have uniformity. All your content looks the same color, same branding, same style of font, same thumbnails, same style. So if people go to my Instagram and, you know, you look above the fold, everything's the same color. It's all mapped perfectly. Everything looks good. It looks like it's a professional business. Whereas most people I go to theirs, and it looks like it's a high school kid's random posts and comments. Right, right, right? Yeah. Like, and so that's not what your business is going. And then once you get that and you start producing content and you learn what your audience craves, then you can start putting a very small amount of boosting posts, hyper-targeting your audience to help grow your audience. Because you have to understand your audience is your most powerful tool to grow any business that you want. That's what the Kardashians taught us, you know? Right, right. If they've taught us anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, think about it, you know? I mean, why are they, you know, billion-dollar, you know, family? Brand, it's, yeah. they built a brand of an audience, and then they sell everything to what their audience wants, and they know, like, and trust them. Right, okay. So this is really cool. All right, so you built a 1,800-transaction mortgage company a year. So where does the other business come from, the other 1,200? Yeah, so about the other... of it comes from realtors. We pretty much the preferred lender for every big real estate team, you know, in our 500,000, you know, kind of person market. And then the other 20% or so is all for my past clients. Because that's the other thing is, is my past clients, all are my followers. They're all engaging in my content. They're all craving it. So when it comes up and they think, oh man, I got to refinance. Shoot, I just watched Brian's video today. I'm going to refer it to Brian. I'm going to talk to Brian or I'll refer Brian. Okay, that's really good. So you've got a workshop coming up. We're going to put a link in the show notes for this. So for people that are interested and it might be sold out, we might be promoting something that's full. Yeah, I mean, it's potentially. But if if there's room, so where would I send them if they're listening to this? Yep, absolutely. So we actually pre-sold it before our even website workshop went live because I've just gotten so there is no work. Yeah, there's no website right now. And you're yeah, it's, so it's, it's high society mastermind, high society mastermind. And basically it's a very high level Instagram workshop for anybody in the you know mortgage or real estate base. And it teaches you more importantly how to beat the Instagram algorithm and how to actually create content that turns it into revenue for that. And like I said, I know too, you know, I know we're going to be doing potentially other workshops because they sold out this fast. And you know, this one in San Diego, just because of the massive demand. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And this is a live workshop. So in the show notes, I'll make sure I have a link there for you guys to go check that out. 
dude, like I could chat with you for hours. This is amazing. So it's cool to see how one of the things I noticed is that you've actually pivoted from direct mail, which I'm assuming you're probably not doing right now. None. You've no. moved to this new medium and you've always got to be looking ahead and being, okay, where's my audience and how do I get in front of my audience in a way that it's not going to be annoying. I've often thought, you know, imagine you get your life insurance and then every week your insurance agent sending you the current rates on life insurance. You'd be like, dude, I got life insurance. I don't freaking care. And that's what most mortgage brokers do, right? They literally are just promoting life insurance and then they're talking about life insurance and nobody cares. And exactly. so it sounds like you've really figured this out. So the thing about high society, I got to say, as being from Canada, where marijuana is legal, it does make me think of, you know, <laughs> what type of society is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You may get people like, hey, dude, this is an amazing pot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Hey, the cannabis needs, I guess, uh, yeah. constant marketing help too. <laughs> okay, man. Well, hey, good chat with you, Brian. People follow Brian on Instagram and the other socials you have. You got YouTube, Instagram. Check it out. See what he's doing and check out this workshop he's got coming up. So thanks, brother. Good chat with you. Absolutely, bro. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Have a great one. All right. I, hopefully you are as inspired as I was from that conversation. I was like, man, there's a lot of great stuff from this. And I'm definitely going down to San Diego to uh, spend a day with Brian and his team to learn about how to use social media better. If you want to go there, check out High Society Mastermind. When he told me the name, I was like, oh, because in Canada, anyway, High Society could mean something completely different. But it's all cool. Go down to San Diego. Let me know if you're going and maybe we'll meet up while you're down there as well. So check out HighSocietyMastermind.com. And in this upcoming segment, I talked to Ruben about the inspiration for Deeded. Hey, Ruben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Hey, man, it's always good to chat. So one time we were chatting about, I said that your guys' platform is like the Domino's Pizza Tracker, you know, Pizza's going in the oven. It's getting ready. Somebody's doing a quality check. We deeded. The cool thing is with your guys' app, it has the same features. And I just closed two mortgages with you guys. And the whole experience was amazing in terms of the transparency. I could see exactly where it was when it was instructed. So my question to you is, where did you come up with this idea? I always find the best ideas don't even come from our industry, actually. They usually come outside. So how did you come up with the idea to do it this way? Yeah, no, thanks, Scott. So the idea is really kind of lifted off of, I think, what we're all used to as consumers. So, you know, Domino's Pizza Tracker, for example, was a pioneer. I think it was about 20 years ago that they've started doing that. But since then, if you think about, you know, we're all consumers, so you're ordering, you know, from Skip the Dishes or Uber Eats or Amazon, we've all been conditioned to be, you know, fed a flow of communication so that we always know exactly where our product or service is. And it's almost like, you know, as consumers, we've become conditioned to expect some of that. And when you don't have that level of transparency, I find at least personally, your anxiety level starts to go up, right? You don't understand what's going on. What's the next step? Is my transactions, my mortgage going to be closed or is it going to you know, be pushed out another couple of weeks? So a lot of those concepts really came from some of the top consumer companies in the world. And they all employ the very sense of you know, transparency and almost like an over communication to put that consumer at ease and make their experience a lot more frictionless. You know, I've heard it said before that you're not competing with the other mortgage broker down the street or the bank. You're actually competing with Amazon in terms of the experience that people are expecting, right? Like love them or hate them. They've completely changed consumer expectations. I want to click to buy. I want to order something and it literally like, ding, it just shows up. So the consumer expectation has increased. And we as mortgage brokers and yourself as a you know technology company that's on the law space need to be looking at those things. And then how do we embed it into our mortgage process? How do we improve the customer experience? And you need to obsess about it. You obsess about the customer experience and then you're going to have more. Because ultimately, like, you know, at the end of the day, as a mortgage broker, I sell a commodity. 
what you can get from me, you can get from Sally down the street and Bob and way that we have to compete is customer experience. If you are not adopting new, better ways to do things, you know, technology like what you guys have, or, you know, using more video, just you are going to be behind. And as Ron Butler said to me a little while ago, he's like, if your business didn't go up 54% last year, you actually are a loser. Because he's like, the transaction count went up and so did the volume. And so if you didn't see at least a 54% increase, you actually went backwards, right? Because too many people are going backwards, but they're being insulated because of the rising mortgage size and the volume of mortgages that we've seen. And so I think it's critical more now than ever that we as mortgage brokers need to be thinking about the customer experience and then things like your deeded mortgage, you know, closing tracker that keeps track of the whole thing like you did with mine is very, very clever. So what's the response been like from clients and brokers with this kind of transparency, again, that you don't typically see? So as you would expect, you know, from a consumer, from a borrower, from a home buyer perspective, communications is 99.9% of making the experience great to your point, Scott. So if we look at, you know, some of the most successful companies of our generation, companies that have become, you know, verbs like Uber, right, or Airbnb, they've all taken a traditional business, like, you know, kind of boring business, like taxi cabs, right? Absolutely. Nothing sexy about that. Absolutely. But what they've done is bring that unprecedented level of transparency. So when you think about, you know, flagging a cab, like you need to get from point A to point B. So option one, flag a cab. I don't know if they're busy or if they're occupied. I don't have any certainty that I'm going to get there on time. I don't have certainty that I'm going to get someone, a driver that's been highly rated, that is professional. And Uber came in and really over-communicated. I can see where my car is. I can see precisely when it's going to arrive. I know the driver's rating. In fact, the driver can rate me. And that's what really makes that experience so unique is you've got that communication transparency all throughout. So for us, from a consumer perspective, obviously getting a mortgage is a very high stakes transaction. We as brokers and on the closing side, we do lots of transactions every day, but our clients don't. Our clients, you know. This is a once every seven years kind of thing for five to seven years for most people. Exactly. So making sure that there's communication and there's transparency that any given time, for example, like with your mortgages, Scott, you know that if we've got mortgage instructions or not, and if we don't, there's a trigger there that tells you, oh, I can take action. I can fix that quickly. So I know that my deal will close on time and not have any unexpected surprises. And that's ultimately what we're trying to get to. And that's why the feedback's been so great. Because when you know, and you anticipate, and you set the expectation, you're in a completely different level playing field than, you know, sitting there in the dark and just waiting for a phone call to happen. And that phone call can be very positive. Your deal's closed or that phone call can be. You don't have enough money or we don't have the instructions. And, you know, I always think transparency increases trust. You'll literally get in the car of a complete stranger that you don't know. And I actually feel more trust with an Uber than I ever did with a taxi cab, right? Like, did I ever tell you the first time that I ordered an Uber when I was with my dad? My dad was like in the 60s, right? So we're in Toronto. We just happened to be at the same time, myself and remember who it was, and, and my mom and dad. And so I'm like, we called a cab. They didn't show up. Typical 25 minutes go by. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. I'm like, I've heard of this thing called Uber. Let me try this. I download the app. I go ping. And then I'm watching this car, just like whatever it is, like a Honda. It's got the color, picture of the dude, license plate. And I'm like, the guy's driving towards me right now. He's coming here. My dad's like, what? This is the crazy. He didn't believe me. He's like, I don't believe you at all. He's like, this is crazy. Some, and he's like, who's picking this up? I'm like, it's an Uber. He's like, but who is it? I'm like, it's just a guy who's got some room in his car. And he just couldn't believe it. He's like, I don't believe this. He's like, he was just, yeah, sure. Some random guy's going to pick us up. Guy pulls up, drives us there. 
we get out. I said, Dad, look, the price was half the cost of what the cab was going to cost. He said, can you put that on my phone? So then I put it on his phone, but then, because he can't set stuff up, he's got my credit card on his phone. Next thing you know, I just see ping, ping. My dad's using Ubers all the time and I'm paying for them. But that's the difference when you create transparency equals trust. And in the mortgage process, usually what happens, we work really hard to have good communication. Hopefully you do. And then it gets to the closing side and we don't have a clue that's going on. We don't know. The clients don't know. The realtor doesn't know. And I think that's a huge mistake. And it's a massive opportunity for brokers who can get their head around this, that your job is not done just because the commitment signed, right? You have a choice to point people in a direction. And if it's in a direction that's going to create better transparency, increased trust, you're going to get more business. Just bottom line, all around better experience. So, Absolutely. No. So just to add to that is one of the accolades we're getting is from brokers to be able to get that visibility and understand exactly what's going on. Because if you sort of equate it to, you know, look at the overall experience, you're putting in your heart and your soul into making this deal work. And then you get to a point where you've got a commitment in hand, but the deal isn't done. It's not done until it's funded and that the funds are in your client's bank account or they have keys in hand, right? Yep. So ensuring that's a great experience requires you to be involved and aware because you know ultimately when something doesn't go according to plan, it's your phone that's going to ring as the broker and they're going to be questioning you. So having that visibility and even so much as touch points to congratulate your client on their mortgage closing or their first home, those are the things that are going to stick around for a long time in terms of what your client remembers about working with you. And that's going to be that topic of conversation and that housewarming party or you know whatever happens next. You want to be top of mind. You want to start creating that word of mouth. Yeah, 100%. So how do we wrap this up? So you don't get a pizza with your, you know, closing, but it's better because you see what's going on. Transparency increases trust. Yeah. You know, this episode is brought to you by the letter T. Back to when I used to watch Sesame okay. Street as a kid. Yeah, let's uh, do it. Okay, so if you guys are listening to this, I'm telling you right now, go check out dita.ca. Reuven and his company are amazing. He's a tech guy who saw this whole experience that needed to be fixed. And I think you guys do an amazing job. So keep it up and dita.ca, check them out. And Ruben, we'll be chatting with you again in the next episode. Awesome. Thanks for having me again, Scott. Hey, so I was impressed with my conversation with Ruben. Love that guy. I mean, he's definitely a tech entrepreneur who understands how to solve problems. And I think that they've done an amazing job with Deeded and the scale that they've grown to in a short period of time is absolutely stunning. It's amazing, actually, how quickly they've grown. Check those guys out at Deeded.ca. And uh, thanks again for listening to this episode. And finally, if you are looking to go to San Diego, maybe if you sign up, send me an email, let me know that you're going. And uh, I'd love to maybe meet up. So check them out. And thanks again for being a listener. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.